Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. Now, I made a joke a couple of weeks ago about Lucy Dallas self-isolating and she had to email relatives to ensure them that she's okay. Well, we're all self-isolating in a kind of way now, but Lucy joins me on the line. I'm on one line. Our guests will be on another line and we're going to try and stitch this together as best we can. Lucy, are you there? I am. Hello. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. It's it's um it's this is the new world. It's a horrible world, isn't it? Uh but it's the world we're no <laughs> longer have to live in for the next yes. year. Oh, uh, but I think we can do this. We'll be we'll be able to do this. It'll be fine. Yeah. It'll be fine. Let's provide some interesting content as they call it. Yeah, it's quite a literary stuff today, but before we get into that, Roz uh, replaced you. Did you listen to the podcast, Lucy? Uh, yeah, I indeed I did. Yes, of course. I won't test you further than simply saying that Roz did said she did not like cake. I can tell you. I can uh, tell you. I listened to it because she said she liked carrot cake, which you found. Oh well. Weird. Do you not agree with that? Yeah, it is weird. Do you think it's weird? I think it's quite weird. Yeah. 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 Okay. Now I thought. We could the food uh, this week could be topical. What is your favourite takeaway or more likely delivery? If you had to have um, a delivery tonight, what would it be? I don't really do deliveries, but really, uh, are you going to stuff to start, Lucy? No, it's a, well, maybe, maybe. Um, in terms of takeaway, I've thought thought deeply about this, uh, and at the risk of being a comedy northerner, I'm going to say fish yeah. and chips. <laughs> How about fish you? And chips. It's not good delivered fish and chips. I can no, tell no, you that. No, you can't. It no, no, soggy. it's only good if you're no. actually right there. Yeah. So basically, you're not having fish and chips for at least another 12 months. Don't say that to me. It's too sad. What, what, what about you? What do you like? Thai. I like, I like Thai food, which I'm still going to try and do. Because also, presumably, we've got to try and support restaurants, haven't we? And I think getting them to deliver might be one way of doing it. But... Yeah. See, I want this to be all cheery about food and we start to... One of the things we aren't going to do, we are going to talk a bit about coronavirus, but we're not only going to talk about coronavirus today, are we? We're going to try and, we're going to try and spread, spread the subject a bit, aren't we? Absolutely. And we're going to provide, if I may say so, food for thought. Oh, can, I, can I say that? No. <laughs> you can say that and then, then now set yourself And everyone fire. can groan. 
Yeah, here's the bit where I encourage everyone to subscribe to the TLS. And please, uh, if you do like the TLS, you do like this podcast, do subscribe because um, a lot of us are working from home now. We're sort of feeling a bit disconnected, I suppose. And we do feel there's a bunch of people out there. And if you like the TLS, do subscribe. Here's a code to get you on board cheaply. The-TLS.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. That's forward slash podcast offer. Best price anywhere on the internet. Five issues for £5 or $5. Coming up this week, our food for thought includes an amazing 1920s issue of the paper, which includes an essay by Nicholson Baker about books from 1920, but all sorts of other things too. A.N. Wilson has written about the great prayer book controversy of 1927 which sounds like a short story by P.G. Woodhouse, but isn't. The poet and critic Richard Aldington was working in the 1920s, but has slipped from cultural memory. Anna Gerling will tell us what we need to know about him. And although we want to provide a distraction from coronavirus sweeping the globe, we also do want to respond to it. So we asked the novelist and translator Tim Parks to send us a report from Milan. He did, beautifully written, and he's on the line to give us an update now. News coverage this week is, of course, focused on the coronavirus. The UK has just seen a new set of restrictions or advice brought in, but other countries are already in lockdown, and the first European country to do this was Italy, the hardest hit by the virus. The novelist Tim Parks, who has also written extensively about the experience of living in Italy, sent us a piece about illness, contagion, and historical and contemporary responses to them. Tim, many thanks for talking to us. Hi. Um, can I just ask you first where you are and what daily life is like for you at the moment? Well, I live uh, just to the south of the centre of Milan, I suppose the first kind of area that's not really the centre. So lots of ethnic community, Arab, Chinese, Indian. Um, about half a mile walk northwards to the Duomo and maybe even less than that out into the fields to the south of the city. Uh, what is life like sitting at home working? When we go out, we're supposed to fill in a piece of paper which says what we're doing uh, so that we're not being irresponsible. As right. it were. Uh, I'm not really sure what that's about because at the end of the day, I don't think most people are, are actually doing that uh, because one can always protest that one doesn't, doesn't have a printer at home to print out this form. Um, when you go out on the streets, there there are just people doing their shopping. I mean, nobody's doing much else. Um, you have to queue outside the shops, of course. I'm sure that's getting fairly regular here, uh, regular everywhere, uh, and occasional police cars uh, controlling and maybe stopping and talking to people, asking them what they're up to. So that's the situation. And uh, at the beginning, you think, well, maybe I'll play a bit more piano. Maybe I'll read a few more books, but but of course what's happening is people are getting, getting, as it were, trapped at home, listening to too much stuff on the TV and radio and reading too much stuff on the internet, most of which seems to be designed to put us in a panic on the one hand, and then on the other hand, make us feel incredibly virtuous. The government now twice a day plays the national anthem at a particular time, inviting people to go out on their balconies and sing it which has more than slightly 1984 feel about it. Uh, and, and rather curious yes. that, that one of the re- refrain lines of the national anthem is, siamo pronti alla morte, we're, we're ready to die, 
which, which of course is what Gosh. exactly we're not ready to, or we wouldn't always all, all be, be locked indoors. Let me say that, that one of the things happened is that you start looking at, at all the statistics and you start realizing that, that while the health service is indeed in a very tricky situation because of the extensive intensive care time needed for many patients, the actual number of fatalities is, is really very, very small compared to, to many other ep epidemics, even in fairly recent years. So it does all seem rather astonishing. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, in your piece, you say that the Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte, said on February 23rd, so really very recently, that he didn't want Italy to become a lazzaretto. Um, and th this is a term that you say most Italians are familiar with. Can you explain it to us? Well, lazzaretto is actually an English word as well. You'll find it in a dictionary. I mean, it just means a, a hospital. I saw it, but I, had, I needed your piece. Oh, really? Yeah, of yeah. course, it's hard for me to remember what I knew because uh, from English and, and from Italian. Lazzaretto is just a word that, that indicates a hospital for the, usually the poor and usually victims of some contagious disease. And it was used for, for lepers in particular in the past. And the words mentioned frequently in Alessandro Manzoni's great book, The, the Big Travels, where there's a long description of the the plague in Milan in 1630. So, so yes, the funny thing was that two weeks after saying that, we did, we did sort of become a lazzaretto, as it were. Um, I, do th I do think that there's yeah. something slightly sinister about what's going on. That there just seems to be something extraordinarily disproportional between, uh, between what's actually happening uh, in, in health terms and the risks, again, in health terms, uh, for the enormous damage that's been done to the economy and to the social structure, uh, first stories of suicides, violence in the home. Gosh. Well, people being locked indoors is actually, I think, quite difficult, even when you, you have a good relationship. The feeling that you can't go out, the feeling that you've lost control, and then not knowing how long it's, it's going to last. And then no voices of dissent are really being allowed. There's one famous guy, uh, an art historian, who posted something on Facebook uh, very aggressively against the restrictions and uh, as then being, um, being sued by the government for inciting people to, um, to disobey restrictions, which he wasn't really doing, I don't think that... But there doesn't seem to be a sort of discussion of what we're doing, which, you know, uh, I, I think might be, it might be helpful. Somebody might explain to me a, a little more clearly why it's absolutely necessary that, we'll, you know, for example, that one can't sit on a park bench or something. Um, the news programs uh, saying things like, it was disappointing to see that a lot of people were out walking in the park. You know, well, you know, if people are keeping apart, I right. can't really see what's wrong with them walking in the park and so on. So, you know, there, there is a feeling, just a slight, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be quarantined to a certain degree, but, but there is a feeling that, that it could get sinister, I think. Right. And it's not so much the restrictions themselves as the way they are being kind of yeah, enforced. Yeah, and, and like the point is that people who make these restrictions 
restrictions, then feel they will absolutely have to justify them. So they, they really need a very strong narrative of we did something extreme and it was successful. Otherwise, obviously, it's going to be a disaster. In your piece, you're ranging from the 14th century, from Boccaccio uh, up to now, and looking at different writers' responses to disease and plague and things like that. And you find um, some contemporary parallels, um, such as the there was public reliance on nosegays and masks and extremes of behaviour. Can you tell us about some of them, please? Yeah, and on the one hand, there, there are definite parallels. Um, people becoming extremely anxious and imagining that certain things will save them. So uh, you get Boccaccio describing, or, or Bilani, I think, uh, describing how in Florence in 1348, people um, using these little bunches of flowers at their noses uh, and and so on, as if this is going to save them the problem. Here, obviously, we've got the masks, which we've been told are, are efficient up to a point, as it were. And lots of people doing funny things on the street, like stopping and 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 turning turning away to look at something when other people go by, you know, as if as if they're sort of afraid that, that even any face to face contact two or three meters away might might lead to infection. Lots of people selling things on the internet that um, are supposedly supposedly will stop you getting the disease that that are obviously completely spurious. Uh, so th- there are connections, and I think there are particularly connections when Boccaccio describes different behavior patterns that develop, like some people just withdrawing completely, uh, some people just deciding the hell with it, let's all go out and get drunk. I mean, in the early days, we saw quite a lot of that here when they closed the bars, and then you get a lot of young people just just hanging out, uh, seeing as it was not freezing cold along the canals, drinking heavily together, um, all leaning all over each other, of course. Uh, so, you know, there are parallels like that. But I think really the huge, the huge thing that doesn't add up is that in 1348, uh, two-thirds of the population of Florence uh, was killed and people were, corpses were dropping on the street and, and people were really in very, very serious you know, it, it was a situation beyond awful. In 1630, uh, Milan lost half of its 130,000 population. Um, now, of course, we have a vastly greater population and we have, have much lower, thank, thank heaven, much lower mentality rates, but we're sitting at home seeing absolutely nothing. None of us, I don't think, except the the, the doctors and people close to those who've had problems, none of us, none of us seen anything at all, but we're in at home, like separate from society, but plugged into a national media that's, that's creating a very powerful mm. narrative for us. Mm-hmm. You also say, um, um, just before the lockdown, you say what an important spiritual exercise awaited us. What, what was the important spiritual exercise and how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> spiritual exercise. Uh, it, it is an exercise in, in detachment, I think, for everybody at the beginning. 
uh, you know, at the beginning, you, you don't want them to close down your gym. Uh, you know, you don't want to not be able to go out and have a drink in your favorite bar, um, to not be able to go for a walk through town. And, and suddenly, you know, even things like, you know, the football, oh, like, this game isn't going to happen that I was looking forward to. This concert isn't going to happen. And you realize how attached you are to your routine and and to your all, all the little stories you're telling yourselves about, about various things going on. So, you know, very, very much really like going on a, going on a on Buddhist retreat for, for 10 days, which I do from time to time and, and learning how to, how to let everything go and so on. But, but then what, what's happened is that people have become extremely attached, on the other hand, to the idea that they're going through a tremendous crisis narrative, a sort of war. And, and really, the war metaphor is absolutely saturating all public discourse. You know, And if there was one appeal that I would make to anybody talking about this thing, it would be to stop using war metaphor, you know, because it's... Um, so there's a detachment from your from your normal life, a period of resignation, and then this kind of crazy attachment to to something. You're in a war, but on the other hand, you're just really sitting at home. So, you know, again, I've been struck by how how some of those scenes in 1984, where ordinary citizens are being invited to express strong emotions and invited to follow narratives on screens and so on about grand events happening far away and getting wired up about it. Well, in fact, nothing's happening at all uh, except that they're, they're being obedient, you know. So it, it's very strange mm. because even in mm. my own head, I can't decide whether I'm just being, you know, <laughs> stubborn and contrary or whether, whether there is really something a bit worrying about all this. I mean, this might sound like a slightly odd question, but I was going to ask about how it affects how you perceive the world around you, because I know that you've written a, a book about consciousness and perception, and I'm wondering if or how an awareness of the sort of situation and this unusual heightened state might change that perception, or may, maybe it doesn't. Well, yeah, the book I wrote about about consciousness very much based on on the work of a, uh, an Italian philosopher who who, who believes that, that that the world that we perceive and that, that actually our, our experience of the world happens out as it were happens as it were outside thanks to our bodies the world is what it is and and our experience of the world is the world uh, outside our bodies so in this particular case what what you're simply bringing is. Uh, a body, in, in in a sense, much changed into contact with the world. If you go to your supermarket, having been locked in your house for two or three days, you know you have a body drive of, of sensations, and suddenly the supermarket seems infinite more interesting than, than it usually does. You know, um, mm. we're, just, we're just being people are just being deprived, but but also on, on uh, also stoked up constantly, and that has happen to make them explain to themselves why on earth they're spending all day all day indoors on their own perhaps when outside the weather is absolutely, of course this is the great irony the weather here is absolutely fabulous with uh, I think we've got 20 degree temperatures yeah. today and mild weather and uh, Gosh. 
and everybody really just wants to be out there. So yeah, a lot of the mayors yeah. in the local towns have been putting out videos on YouTube uh, complaining about the citizens getting out on the streets. Um, in Verona particularly, there was a, there was a, a, a fairly furious video by the mayor. And down south in a, in a, in a place in Sicily, there, there was a video saying... How come none of you have ever run, done any running since primary school, and now you're all out running? What's <laughs> happening? You know, and you think, well, you know, can it really be that bad to be out running? I, I don't know. It, it, it seems that like everybody started, started said, to imagine we can the, get this virus in any possible way. There was a long article on whether you can bring the virus home on your shoes, you know, Uh in the paper the other yeah. day, deciding obviously that one can't, but 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 then having a huge title, with, you know, a huge headline, which suggested that you know maybe you could. So I don't know. Yes, watch out! Stop wearing or stop right. going out in your shoes. They are saying here that you can that you can um, you know go out for a walk for health reasons. Yeah, so yeah, well, they do. I mean, I think in lots of ways, it's it's not quite the same here. Well, yeah, but it's early days, so we'll see how that develops. And also here, yes. here, if you actually go on the government website, you will find that it says that um, you are allowed to go out for sporting reasons, okay, uh, as long as you don't go out in a group. So you were taught that taking a walk amounted to that, but then you're told you're not allowed to or not supposed to accept in essential circumstances. There's this whole vagueness, partly because people who are working in offices, many of them are still working in offices. Many places of work are still open. Most factories are still open. And, and these are obvious places where, where uh, you're much more likely to spread a virus, I would imagine, in a, an interior than you would be out on the street. So you think, well, you know, really, what, what is this about? It's very odd. There's definitely a desire to be Um, told what um, to do. There is a desire to be told what to do in the air. No doubt about that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's well. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, and I just wanted to ask you one um, final thing. It's a rather big question, I'm afraid. Do you think this is changing or will change Italian society and maybe others, or do you think it will just be gratefully forgotten? Thank God that's finished yeah. when it's all. I over. wish I knew the answer to that question. You know, uh, that's obviously the question we're all asking ourselves, isn't it? Like, is this a re- is this a rehearsal for some kind of more authoritarian government in the future, particularly if we have something rather more serious than this virus to deal with, you know, global warming, for example. You know, how come, how come there was never all this money for global warming? Or, or, or you know, not to mention a million. How come that down in Taranto, which has Europe's biggest steelworks, they have a scandalous levels of pollution and thousands of cancer deaths? Uh, associated to it, and nobody wants to close down the factory. So I suppose, yes, we think, you know, maybe the, maybe our, our politicians will discover that actually we don't care that much about democracy after all, and we're willing, at least for periods, to accept this stuff. I hope that's not the case. I hope we'll just go back to normal. But But I fear that the economic fallout from this, despite all the money they're throwing at it, is is going to be terribly serious and that 
the people most exposed in the gig economy, and, and particularly in Italy's vast black economy, um, are not going to be in an easy position to apply for those funds because a lot of what they're doing is probably uh, theoretically illegal anyway. Uh, there's going to be a lot of um, a, a lot of, of really difficult final economic situations for a lot of people. I, I, I think that's simply inevitable. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank you very much for those thoughts and reflections. And keep um, singing the Italian <laughs> national anthem. I really, I had no, no idea you had to do well, we that. We don't have to help. Um, but Let's many thanks for joining us. You don't have to. You're encouraged to. Not that many in my area yes. are. That's our mark. Thank you very much, and we we hope you stay well. Okay, and yourselves, obviously. Thank you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The novelist Nicholson Baker argues this week that in the last hundred years, nothing has really changed. Certainly, we still live in a time of pandemics. But Ian Wilson has recalled an event which reminds us most poignantly that the past is another country. They do things differently there. He's talking about the prayer book controversy of 1927-8, at the end of which the House of Commons ruled that the Church of England could not replace the 1662 text with a newer version. This was an event so seismic that more public tickets were claimed for this debate than for any other in the history of Parliament. What was going on, you ask? Well, Andrew Wilson, one of my favourite contributors, is here to tell us. Andrew, hello. Oh, Sting, you flatter. Anyway, <laughs> it is an extraordinary story because, I mean, so many people felt passionately about it who weren't remotely religious. I mean, I started my piece by talking about a Labour MP called Josiah Wedgwood, who was descended from the great Potter. Um, and 
Wedgwood was involved with all sorts of extraordinarily important political events between the two world wars. He was a passionate advocate of Zionism. He was uh, very keen uh, that India should break away from the British Empire and have independence. Uh, he stuck up for his constituents and indeed all working class people and work conditions and so on and so on. But when he was looking back uh, over his life, he said that the most important event between the wars was the House of Commons decision to reject the revised prayer book. And what, what, why were the, why were they even debating it? What was the what was the what was it, what was at stake? I mean, here? it's an extraordinary thing. I mean. Modern people would think, oh, what they were doing is trying to have a modern language prayer book like the Church of England and various churches the Roman Catholic Church have now. But it wasn't that. What had happened was that during the Victorian age, some of the uh, members of the Church of England had decided that they really wanted to be Catholic, and they left and became Roman Catholics, like Cardinal Newman. Um, others thought, well, maybe the Church of England actually is Catholic. And this touched some very, very deep nerve in national consciousness, which is impossible for us to reconstruct now. That's why I say the past is another country, as the, in the LP Hartley phrase, because uh, Wedgwood wasn't interested in the Church of England. What he was interested in, uh, as indeed were a lot of the Northern Irish members of Parliament, the, the Ulster Protestants, the We Freeze in Scotland, I mean, all sorts of agnostics weighed in. They were interested in British identity, which they thought was essentially Protestant. And when you look at the press, the press coverage of the prayer book, uh, Rao, in 1927, 1928, left and right both agree on this. The Daily Express, the Beaverbrook paper, said Britain is by definition Protestant just as the sea is salt. And the Manchester Guardian, which is liberal paper, uh, said exactly the same. What's on trial here is not whether you uh, change the prayer book to make it slightly more like the Roman Catholic Mass. That was, the, that was the, roughly speaking, the nature of the, the row. Um, but why, but but why, why, why was there even an intent to make it more Roman Catholic? Because so many people, after Newman left and became a Catholic in 1845, there was a gradual movement in the Church of England, the so-called High Church movement, which Queen Victoria absolutely hated. <laughs> it made her spit with rage, so much so that Disraeli brought in a special act. It was the only um, political event in Disraeli's life that he said he really regretted. Um, in 1874, uh, they brought in this law which said that if a clergyman in the Church of England dresses up more like a Catholic priest wearing certain robes and things like that, uh, he can go to prison. And some of them did go to prison. Um, and the, the, really the question is, is the Church of England a, a purely Protestant church or does it retain vestiges of its old Catholic past, which is what Henry VIII wanted it to do, of course. And, um, and why was this a matter for Parliament? I mean, it was a matter for Parliament because the Church of England really was an established church in those days. That is to say, all its, um, all its laws were determined by the secular Parliament. OK, so... The... If, you, if you wanted to change something about the Church of England, you had to do it through the House of Commons. And the Church of England presumably wanted to be more ecumenical? Did it want to be broader so, so Catholics could...? Well, I mean, what happened was, I mean, as is true today is still, of course, there are the sort of real Protestants in the Church of England, the sort of so-called evangelicals. There are the ultra, ultra high church ones who 
dress and behave exactly like the Catholics, only more so, blue, blue Catholic to Le Pape. And then there's the great wishy-washy middle uh, ground of the Church of England, which likes cathedral services. Why not have some dignified, beautiful robes? Why not, as a musical accompaniment, have a, a Mozart mass or something? But it doesn't believe. It doesn't mean they actually believe in the. It mass. Barely believes in God, um, presumably. A lot of these, this. Or barely believes in God, most of them. So, but I mean, again, that's that's really neither here nor there. Actually, but they believe in God. The question is whether they're Protestant or Catholic. And for for a great number of British people, I mean, certainly the overwhelming. Uh, majority of the British public were against changing the prayer book, not because they went to church or were interested in it, but because they thought it was a sign that uh, Britain was still an independent, it's a bit slightly Brexity really, independent of continental religion, the Pope, uh, and it didn't need priests to get in the way of uh, a person's relationship with the mystery. So, of so how much of this is anti-Catholic? Is it how much of this is a, an, even in 1928 that? people define themselves not as Protestants necessarily uh, by belief, but by being anti-Catholic, anti-Rome. Anti Very much so. It's entirely anti-Catholic. It's, it's, it, that's what it is. Uh, I mean, that's why I start again, that's why I started with Wedgwood. It, it wasn't that he was pro-anything else. He was anti-Catholic. And um, I think that's gone now because people are so secular that they don't really care. And I mean... I think the great majority of Christians would think well, it doesn't really matter which church you belong to, well, I'm all, even Catholic. I'm always struck by the fact that you know two of the great sporting football rivalries in the country, you know Liverpool, Everton, and and Rangers, Celtic, Rangers, Celtic, particularly that used to that divides on Protestant Catholic lines, but it always feels that how, very much so. And how just, many of them really care about the difference? You know how mass is celebrated and whether the wafer really becomes the body of Jesus or not. It feels oh, no. ridiculous, doesn't it? <laughs> no, they don't care about that. It's just that they know. I mean, if you're if you're if you're Celtic, you hate the Prots, and if you're Rangers, you hate the Catholics. And you say you talked about it as if it was in the past. Very, very recently, letter bombs were sent between those two teams, and there was an attempted murder in Glasgow. Very, very recently, I mean, last five years, um, between Rangers and Celtic. And as you say, the same thing in Liverpool. And I mean, of course, things have changed in Liverpool to to a large extent. I've spoken to older friends who come from Liverpool. You know, there are streets down which a Catholic would not walk in Liverpool in in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, even the 50s. And that's got different now. And I mean, you raise an interesting point. In the event that Prince Charles becomes king, uh, he the last time when the Queen became the Queen, she had to swear to defend Protestantism. He's already said he's defender of the faith with the plural, hasn't he? So presumably he won't swear to defend Protestantism at all. I don't know what the faith. <laughs> I don't know what the faiths are, but I mean, for instance, you know, there are more Muslims in this country than there are Methodists. There are probably more practicing Muslims than there are practicing Christians. Um, I'm sure that's that's probably Jews not true. I'm, sure, with I'm sure that's probably not true. But I mean, well, all right then, it's not quite yeah. true. No, but you know, yeah. What but I mean, mean, and so and actually, uh, he, he and, could and, have a great ecumenical role here, couldn't he? To say I'm a defender of all people's rights to pursue all different faiths. Well, I think I think he's trying to, but I, we don't know yet. What they all they've already written the the new coronation service. There is going to be a, diff, a different one. But they haven't let on what they've what they've done, and certainly, as you say, all the all the British monarchs from the time of the Reformation down to our present Queen have sworn not just to defend the Christian religion, but to f defend the Protestant religion. 
And um, and is, does this is this really an account uh, of progress we're talking about then? Because actually, to if in a country where the biggest event in Parliament is a anti-Catholic one, where defending the Protestant faith necessarily comes at the cost of other faiths, can we see that not only a rise of secularism but progress? Because we're not tying ourselves up in in this particular knot anymore. Well, I see it as progress. Of course I do. And I mean, I just thought most reasonable people would see it as progress. But what's interesting, I think, I mean, if you look at Linda Colley's excellent book written in the 1990s called Britons, uh, she says that when the, the two countries, Scotland and England, came together, the thing which really defined the union was their Protestantism. And that was why the Jacobite rebellions in the 18th century were so important. It was so important to stamp them out because Britain and Scotland and Protestant Ireland, Protestant parts of Ireland, felt this great... The thing which held them together wasn't a shared language or anything else. It, it was this shared gut religion. And we don't have that anymore. And I, I do, do wonder whether that means we don't really have any... I mean, I wouldn't mind if we didn't have a national identity, but we don't really have a national identity. Well, you actually, there's a broader point there, in the same way. Andrew, isn't there? Because we talk about the United Kingdom, and that's a United Kingdom of Protestant countries, as you say, in Scotland, Northern Ireland, England and Wales. If you remove the Protestantism uh, and you also have this antagonism about the EU and our different relationships with that, then you could argue that, that the, the removal of the religious aspect really gets rid of the one true original reason to, to have it in the first place. I think, I think that's absolutely true. I think the, one of the interesting... When I was meditating on this question of the 1927 prayer book, I was thinking it, it, was, a, it was very like Brexit. And I think the Brexit argument, without many people quite realising it, was a sort of secular version. It was a kind of secular version of thinking about the Spanish Armada and the Pope and all these other alien continental forces were trying to take us over and people thought, hooray, we're free in the, in the age of Spencer and Sir Philip Sidney and so on. And uh, obviously people didn't bring that to the surface during Brexit, but it was a bit similar. Yeah, well, it's an, I, and I'm so grateful for you uh, for, for raising it because I, you know, am non-intellectual that I am, had never heard of the great prayer book controversy of 1927. Ridiculous. And now I have, but what's fascinating is you can have, I mean, the actual interest, the theology is interesting, but the but the question of national national identity is, is more interesting still. It is. It, 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 although, of course, the, the reason for changing the prayer book was theology. The reason for objecting to the change, it wasn't theology. It was this gut uh, Rangers uh, v Celtic stuff. Right, yeah, brilliant. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak to us. Look after yourself. We're all doing this remotely, so thank you for doing that, and, and you take care of yourself. We're keeping our fingers Keep, crossed. You, just take, you take care of yourself, my friend. <laughs> Bye, Take Steve. care. Now, if you're into modernism and I name a trio of poets, I wonder how many would confess to a familiarity with all three of these. Ezra Pound, yes, Hilda Doolittle or HD, maybe, and Richard Aldington. Is anyone sitting there gesticulating confidently at their phones about that last name? And yet Aldington was, as Anna Girling notes, at the heart of the avant-garde movement in London and a prolific and successful writer between the wars. How did he end up, in the words of Robert Graves, as a bitter, bedridden, leering, asthmatic, elderly hangman of letters? Well, Anna has reviewed a two-volume biography of him by Vivian Welpton and is here to tell us more. Anna, hello. Hello. Is it just my 
disgraceful lack of literary knowledge that I'd not heard of Richard Aldington. How, how, how big a name is he in, in literary circles? Not at all. I think many, um, even people working in universities on modernism, um, they might know his name, but many of them would not have read anything by him, I would suggest. Um, and certainly until a few years ago, I hadn't really heard of him myself. I think that um, he's, you know, it's a real cliche to say, oh, so-and-so is an hour footnote. Um, but I think he's definitely a minor figure sort of at best um, for many people. And he is often a footnote or maybe a, a paragraph or a chapter uh, in the accounts of more of better known modernists. Um, I think you, you're not alone <laughs> Uh, but he wasn't always that way, was he? Like, particularly the first half of his career, did it look like he was going to be a bigger figure than that? Well, I think especially if you look back to his very early career, sort of before the First World War in London and the people he was friends with, um, such as Ezra Pound, who you know, I think most people, even who don't consider themselves interested in modernism, know the name Ezra Pound. Um, and you know, Pound and Aldington and H.D. or Hilda Doolittle um, were... sort of all on a par in the days before the First World War and editing each other's poetry and um, helping each other get published and publishing together and producing anthologies together. And so the fact that Pound became this essentially a household name um, while Aldington has completely forgotten it's just such a strange... um, not strange, but it's it's, a, it's very interesting, the fact that Pound ended up so ubiquitous and Aldington has really forgotten... And how good, I mean, how much is that down to just, just history making the correct judgment about quality? How good a poet and critic was, was Aldington? Um, well, I think, I'm not going to defend his work. I'm not, um, I personally don't sort of love his work. I think he's absolutely compelling, fascinating character. And I think his life is fascinating. Um, but I, yeah, I think, I'm not sure I don't, how much of history overrated figures like Pound and Elliot. I'm not sure. And I think there has been a degree of correction since, say, the 1970s with figures such as HD becoming more recognised for their role. Um, but I think there's, there are many, many factors at play. Personalities, lives, economics. So Aldington had to do a lot of what he would have called hack work. You know, he had to write for money, whereas Pound didn't necessarily have to do so much of that. So I think Aldington really kind of left behind avant-garde work, left behind really kind of intense creative work um, to do a lot of work simply to make a living, which I think has had a huge impact on his um, his reputation. Another thing that had an impact on his reputation was he, he married Hilda Doolittle and then cheated on her, and he had a pretty um, um, reprehensible love life generally. Do you think he's, he's, he's correctly or otherwise judged for his morality in that respect? It's such an interesting question, and it's one that I really thought about a lot while reading this biography and um, writing about it. And I was also thinking about Francesca Wade's recent work in Square Haunting, where she writes about um, HD, is very much focused on HD, and Aldington really is there as a minor figure, which I thought was very interesting. Um, I don't know, I think everyone will have to will make their own decision on this. I'm not sure that he can be completely cancelled, to use a modern word, um, because of his affairs but I think everyone will have their everyone will find that his work is coloured um in a, to a certain extent by his actions I certainly um find that I read you know I'm my knowledge of his life is coloured when I read his work and um it's, I think it's not necessarily his love life it's his attitude to women I think there is a lack of respect and misogyny that comes through in some of his works so um 
it's not mentioned in the review, but um, Vivian Welpson writes about his later, um, or I think a novel that came out around about 1930 called The Colonel's Daughter, which was based, recognisably based on a woman that he knew, a neighbour of his. Um, and the title character is described as kind of, I think, being you know, stupid and vast and ugly. And this woman that he knew read this novel um, and knew it was based on her. So I think, I think things like that colour the work. But what colours his work sort of more, or what colours the biography more for me, is the way that people have tried to defend him against the supposed morality police. I think that's more of an issue, I would say. So people... does this biography, I mean, if you're going to write a two-volume biography of a minor figure, then you're, you're pre- presumably pretty invested in, in making the case that he deserves rather more acclaim. Is that what happens? Is, is this a is this a defence biography? A, I, a I, I, defense? I, yes, I would say it is. Um, I, mean, I think that listeners should obviously read it and make up their own minds. I think that I don't, um, I have to say, having read this book, it's two volumes, I wouldn't, I don't de- deny that he deserves a long, in-depth biography because he knew so, he knew almost every interesting figure in the early 20th century um, sort of Anglophone literary world. Um, and he had a really interesting life, kind of very bohemian, sort of particularly early, tw- early 20th century life, um, which is, Absolutely fascinating. But I think that, yes, it, Vivian Welton does defend him from these people who've unjustly criticised him. I personally find that slightly difficult at times. Um, yes, I, I think because part of the way she does it is by criticising the woman around him, um, especially Briar, um, who's HD's partner. And I think that for me that, that raised a few questions. Uh, it's interesting that he lived he lived through two world wars and was working through all, all of them. How, is it clear how those different wars impacted upon him and his work? Yeah, I think the wars are really important in thinking about Aldington, partly because he um, fought in the First World War and survived it, obviously. Um, and he, he wasn't conscripted until fairly late um, because he was married. But um, what's really interesting, he, he was working throughout the First World War, so I think his, his letters are absolutely fascinating. I'd recommend anyone who's interested in him to sort of go out and read his letters. Um, so his letters back to HD during the First World War are almost, you know, not totally, but uh, to a large part are about their work. He's you know, at the front, you know, in a dugout or whatever, and saying, oh, I could you send this poem off to so-and-so? I said that I think you should write, you know, you should send your poem off to this editor. And he's really trying to keep his career ticking over and his wife's career ticking over from the front. Um, and I think that as it went on, obviously he couldn't write as much and um, publish as much as his contemporaries who hadn't fought, um, such as D.H. Lawrence and Pound, and obviously his wife. And, and I think that, I mean, obviously he was traumatised by the First World War, as many were who fought and who didn't fight. But I think the main issue for him was that his career stalled to a certain extent because of the war, understandably. And he he couldn't ever quite get over that or couldn't quite make up the ground that he thought other people had um had gained in his absence. And I think I think that was true, but also I think it became a huge source of resentment for him and thus began a cycle of resentment, which I think alienated lots of his friends in the end. And is that why by the 1950s he was pretty... Dis- I mean, it's fair to say he was kind of despised, wasn't he? He kind of... Well, despised, yes. Um, it's quite a strong word. I don't think he actually was despised at the beginning of the 50s. I think he was just... He was forgotten. He'd spent the Second World War in America... Um, because he was already there when the war broke out, trying to get a teaching job. And then he and his second wife stayed in America during the war. And then and he hadn't lived in Britain um, for about 10 years at that point. He'd been living in France. Um, and then he um, 
moved back to France after the Second World War. And so he was really quite distant from the British um, you know, literary world. And after the Second World War, I think there probably, there was a new generation. He was kind of an older writer at that point who was um, out of touch and who also hadn't been involved in the war effort. This great, this war that was seen as a bit more noble than the First World War because it was against fascism. Um, and, you know, he, I think he was just seen as a bit irrelevant. And so I think that it, in his head, I think he thought he was despised, but because he didn't want to, it was easier to think he was despised and had been forgotten. But then a few um, things happened which did make him a bit more despised. Um, but yeah, I think he was largely yeah, forgotten. What, 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 what did he do? In the, anything particularly? So he, um, the two sort of scandals of the mid-50s for him were the two biographies he published of um, a Lawrence of Arabia and of Norman Douglas. And the Lawrence of Arabia one in particular caused huge problems for him um, because Lawrence of Arabia was obviously a British hero uh, and there have been a few earlier sort of hagiographies of him. Um, and uh, Lawrence, no, sorry, Lawrence Aldington decided to... Um, I think he started off thinking he was going to be praising Lawrence, but as time went on, he realised... Um, you know, he did, re- did his research and realised that Aldi- um, Lawrence's own accounts of his time in the Middle East were, if not falsified, then exaggerated. And also that Lawrence was both gay and it was illegitimate. And so he was the first writer to expose these um, facts about Lawrence's life, which wouldn't be particularly surprising to us now or even shocking, Or, but that was at the time. These were quite scandalous. And so the British establishment in inverted commas um, clubbed together and tried to block the publication of this biography, which led to huge delays, and um, Aldington had to rewrite sections of it. And then when it finally did come out, there was almost you know, like a concerted campaign. It really was. I, I think it was... It's not just a conspiracy theory. It did happen that Basil Little Hart essentially wrote letters to all the people he thought might review it and um, told them what to write. And so all these reviews came out um, by people, some of whom hadn't even read the biography, with really similar passages um, kind of copied from Basil Little Hart criticising the biography. Um, and and but the part of the reason that he didn't have many friends to defend him at that point was because a few... I think a few months earlier, or maybe the year before, he'd published a biography of Norman Douglas in which he savaged him, um, really attacked him for his paedophilia and for um, just being a really unpleasant person, didn't treat his friends very well. And, of course, now, you know, I think Norman Douglas is a really interesting person to talk about in terms of reading a writer's work and thinking about the morality, because I think I don't know many people who like to read his work anymore because of the knowledge of his relationships with, or not relationships, because of his um, predatory behaviour towards young boys. Um, and Olin is on the right side of history there. Well, Olin is on the right side of history, but I, this is a, I think this is absolutely fascinating because he is on the right side of history. And he's also on the right side of history with Lawrence, to a certain extent, Lawrence of Arabia. But it's the way he went about it. So um, he had been a really good friend of Norman Douglas. So he'd, he'd spent sort of years living with him, or maybe months living with him in Florence in the 1930s. They'd been very, very, very good friends. Um, and he'd seen his behaviour with young boys and young girls at the time and had not battered an eyelid. And he'd even offered to defend Douglas when Douglas was accused of raping a young girl. Um, and I think it's, so it's a hypocrisy of being friends with someone and then deciding 
later for whatever reason to um, to expose it. When he, if he cared about those young um, the, the children, he might have done something at the time. And I think there was an element of um, Oldington perhaps being homophobic. Well, he certainly was homophobic, as his biographer admits, um, because in other letters which Walton quotes, he describes life, you know, the happy days in Italy before Mussolini came to power, when you'd see a man um, molesting a young girl and, you know, oh, those happy days, didn't the young girls enjoy it? And he's talking about children. Um, but because it's a man with girls, he seems to have less of a problem with that than Douglas with boys. So I think he's on the right side of history, but maybe for the wrong reasons. i tell you what, Anna, I, I, I mean... He is a on the, in the footnote of the uh, of the period, but uh, he sounds like an interesting chap. It's well, it's well worth sort of wrestling with with some of these issues around him, isn't it? Oh, he's he's a really interesting character, and I think that um, I find particularly um, his late life letters really interesting. Of looking back to his youth and um, his letters with H. D. and Briar, you know, they'd known each other since they were teenagers, essentially, and they're kind of looking back to their useful days and comparing notes. I, I think that um, I'd really urge anyone who's interested in him to go and read his letters and to read Welton, Welton's biography as well. Um, even, you know, even if he's not likeable, he's fascinating, certainly. That's a great recommendation. Anna Gerling, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Lovely to speak to you. That's all we have time for this week. Now, you may have noticed that Lucy spoke to Tim, I spoke to A.N. Wilson and to Anna Gerling. Technology this first day of remote working has mildly defeated us, but we are going to be all back communicating properly next week. Lucy, thank you for for coming along. We nearly we, <laughs> ne- we nearly did it remotely, along. didn't we? Yeah, we, we nearly we did, did it. Didn't we did. We patched it together. It like uh, it's patched- like Frankenstein. There's a literary reference for you. Yeah, exactly. And whatever happened to him? Oh, how did that? How did let's, that story let's pass turn over out? that one. It, it didn't go so well. No, but uh, uh, we're all we're, we're keeping going the TLS. Uh, we've actually we've got two or three issues already planned. The digital side where you work, Lucy, that's all working fine, isn't it? So people should support us, become subscribers, uh, get involved because uh, we're not going anywhere, are we? We're we're very much here and um, uh, still talking and thinking about things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we can do no more than that. And actually, this week's TLS is really one of the most beautiful ever. Do buy it just for the front cover drawn by Ella Barron alone. Next week, we'll be communing remotely again, but I think we're going to be talking about art history. Wherever you are in the world, please look after yourselves, stay safe and stay sane. Until next time, from Lucy and from me. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.